0: 2006, November 8th. Today is Lecture 33 on the planet Mercury, which will begin in just a moment. We're going to begin our exploration of the solar system. We're going to go from the inside out, and we're dealing right now primarily with the terrestrial planets. That's the main topic of discussion over the next five lectures. Actually, four lectures, excuse me. Today we're going to start with the innermost of the terrestrial planets, Mercury, a small, airless, completely beat up little world, about which we know a fair amount, but we still have a lot more to learn, as we'll see in this lecture. The key idea is, of course, just simply a, a bare statement of fact, Mercury is the innermost of the planets. There's nothing closer to the sun than Mercury at this point. One of the interesting properties of Mercury is that its rotation knows something about the sun's tidal field. In fact, Mercury is locked in a three to two what's called spin orbit resonance with the sun. We'll see how that works here in just a second and where that came from. This is the f- second time we've seen a spin orbit resonance, but the first time we've seen one where it isn't just one to one. We're well, gonna take a close look at the surface of Mercury. Mercury's had uh, at least one spacecraft visit in the past. Actually, it was two flybys, successive flybys. The surface of Mercury is very heavily cratered. It's an airless world with virtually no atmosphere. and We'll talk a little bit about the terrain features in the surface of Mercury. There's a lot of similarities compared to the Moon, but a lot of important differences as well. And then we'll say something about Mercury's interior. Even though there haven't been landers and seismographs, you can learn something about the interior of an object by looking at evidence of past geologic activity on its surface, or you can make an estimate of its density. How tightly packed is the matter? And what we find from this is that Mercury has a very, very large iron core and a weak magnetic field. It's quite a surprise to have a magnetic field. I didn't expect it, but certainly people didn't expect the very, very high density. We didn't know the mass of Mercury until we sent a spacecraft by because you can only measure the mass of something by measuring its effect of gravity on its surroundings. And the final thing is we actually see signs of weak tectonic activity on the surface of Mercury. In this case, it's not going to be tectonic plates. Mercury is going to wrinkle as it cools off. And we can actually see the evidence of that wrinkling. And It gives us some idea about some of the nature of both the interior as well as the formation behind Mercury. We're going to find Mercury is going to be an example of an extreme planetary impact behind its formation. At least that's the current idea for why Mercury has some unusual properties. as we do our little tour of the solar system, I'm going to begin each of the individual planet lectures with a slide that's going to look something like this. There's a lot of information here. I'm mostly saying it because I want to get it out there and, of course, all the information is in the lecture notes. I don't expect you to memorize these numbers. I certainly don't, but what it does, it kind of sets the stage, basically gives you some numbers to chew on a little bit. Mercury at a glance will start with its orbital data. Its semi-major axis is a little over .38 astronomical units, it's the closest planet to the sun. That by Kepler's third law is going to give us a period of just a shade under 88 days. So it's a pretty fast, pretty fast orbit. In fact, it's Mercury's very rapid motion with respect to the celestial sphere. That was probably the origin behind its name as Mercury, the winged messenger of the gods. Mercury has an ellipticity, an eccentricity, excuse me, of 0.26. That's a measurement of basically it's the square root of the ratio of the axis, ratio of the long to short axis. It's a shape factor for the ellipse. This is the most elliptical orbit of all of the planets. Mars is sort of the second in order, but Mercury is so close to the sun, it's really hard to do the trick that, that Kepler was able to do with Mars. So it was lucky that Kepler had Mars to work with. Otherwise, the next thing you're left with is Mercury. Mercury's got the most elliptical orbit of all the eight planets. The the ellipticity actually leads to a fair amount of variation in the distance that Mercury comes between the uh, the distance of Mercury to the sun. Perihelion, point of closest approach, is just a little over three-tenths of an astronomical unit, whereas aphelion goes out to 0.47 AU. So actually the ellipticity, the off-center, the lopsidedness of the orbit, is actually fairly apparent. And I've drawn the orbit over here on the right, you can see the sun is very much off-center. It's at one focus of the ellipse. And you can s- almost begin to see the elliptical shape of this. It's out of round enough that you can actually sense that it's out of round in looking at it. And you can compare that, for example, to Mars here, which you really cannot distinguish from a circle on this scale. Now, this orbit is tilted by about 7 degrees with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. That actually means that um, Mercury is only going to cross the surface of the Sun every now and then. In fact, Mercury went through is going through a transit of... Oh gosh, when is the transit? Was yesterday or today? Hmm. Later this week? I can't remember. Thursday. Thursday is the transit. Tomorrow is the transit of Mercury. It's one of these rare events where Mercury actually crosses the surface of the Sun. Do not try to observe the transit of Mercury even if it is clear tomorrow. It's extremely dangerous to do. You need a telescope with very special filters to do it because Mercury is so tiny. And finally, of course, as I've said before, Mercury is the most elliptical of the planets. The physical properties of Mercury are as follows. It's a little computer-generated picture of Mercury based on the best data we have. Mercury does not really have this smooth spot here that's missing data. We simply do not have any images of that part of the planet. Planetary data is this radius. is fairly small. It's about a little little, under, um, a little over 2,400 kilometers in radius, which means it's only about 38% the radius of the Earth. So by volume, it's going to be 38% cubed, so it's tiny. It's mass is about a little over 5.5% of the mass of the Earth. Now this immediately raises a flag. An object that size should not have this kind of mass. And that immediately tells you that Mercury's got an unusually high density. It's got an unusual amount of material compared to other rocky planets packed into that volume. Mercury does rotate. And contrary to the, to the opinion for a long time, I remember when I was a kid in school reading about Mercury, we were told that Mercury always keeps the same face towards the sun. That's false, it actually doesn't. If that was true, then its rotation period would be the same as its orbital period, or 88 days. In fact, the rotation is about 58.6 days. This turns out to not be a random number. It turns out to be exactly two-thirds of that 88-day period. So if you took the period of the orbit on the previous page and took two-thirds of that, you would get exactly the rotation period. This is an important piece of information. This tells us that Mercury has a resonant orbit. It's not perfectly locked, but it's locked in a ratio of 3 to 2. Now, because it's locked in a ratio of 3 to 2, even though it completes one rotation with respect to the stars, it's circling the Sun every 88 days. So the combination of those two leads to its day, basically a synodic day, is 176 days long. So Mercury does see the sun rise and set, rise in the east and set in the west, according to a person standing on the surface of Mercury. But your day is gonna be 176 days. So you'll have, um, divide that by two, 88 days of sunlight and 88 days of darkness. The axis is pretty close to, f- to up straight up and down. It's around two degrees. Um, some arguments still about the angle of that. It's just hard to measure. Let's look at that rotation period for a second that really stands out. Originally, people, their expectation was because Mercury was so close to the sun, that tides from the sun should lock Mercury's rotation into a one-to-one resonance, much in the same way that tides from the Earth lock the moon into a one-to-one orbit, so that the moon completes one rotation for every orbit around the Earth. What was found, however, is measuring the rotation of Mercury was actually pretty challenging. Mercury does not have a lot of obvious surface features on it. and So it's very difficult using just an optical telescope to watch surface features rotate and try to see if Mercury is rotating. And so because the features were so subtle, it fooled people originally into thinking that Mercury was in fact locked in synchronous rotation with respect to the sun. However, using radar techniques, using the giant radio telescope in Arecibo, that thousand foot dish built into that, in that valley in Puerto Rico, bounce a radar signal off of it, you can see the Doppler shift from one side of Mercury to another. So the part of Mercury that's rotating towards you will blue shift the return signal. The part of Mercury that's rotating away from you will red shift the return signal. And so you actually see a single frequency go out and then it gets split into a red shifted and blue shifted part because in rotation, half is always moving towards you and half is always moving away. And what people found from that was very slow and they had to measure it with very high accuracy is they got a real surprise. Namely that Mercury was rotating faster than people expected. It was rotating, however, with not just any number but was rotating in a three to two spin orbit resonance. Now because it's rotating faster than it orbits, Three to two spin-orbit resonance means that it's going to complete three rotations for every two orbits, whereas a one to one spin-orbit resonance would be completing one orbit for every uh, rotation. One rotation for every orbit. So whenever you see a, a spin-orbit resonance, the number here refers to the ratio of the spin or rotation period to the orbital period. So it's always rotation to orbit. In this case, it's three to two. So for example, if, I, if, if Mercury was in a two to one spin orbit rota- um, period, it would complete two rotations for every one orbit and so forth. So you really only pay attention to it when it's a whole number ratio like this. And this is the first example we've seen where it's not just one to one. Now the Moon is in a one to one spin orbit resonance. Mercury is in a three to two spin orbit resonance. It, it turns three times on its, on its axis with respect to the stars. So we always measure periods of rotation, and we always measure orbits with respect to the stars, not with respect to the sun. So it completes three rotations for every two orbits. Now, why does it do this? Well, it turns out that, again, a little bit of of careful thought, and people did do this thinking, that Mercury should not be in a one-to-one resonance. It's close to the sun, but it's also on an elliptical orbit. It's a fairly elliptical orbit, as we saw. It has a close approach of around 0.3 AUs and it gets furthest away at aphelion at about 0.47 AUs. That's a lot of distance, that's a lot of ground to cover. Turns out that the tides are not surprisingly going to be strongest on Mercury from the sun when Mercury is closest to the sun. So the tides are stronger at perihelion. That's where you get your, your strongest torque trying to force you into synchronous rotation. Well, we can ask an interesting thought question. What would be the period of orbit that Mercury would have if instead of being on an elliptical orbit, it was on a circular orbit at its perihelion distance. So imagine that we put it instead on a circular orbit at its point whose radius was its closest approach to the sun down at 0.31 AUs. The answer would be about 56 days, which is exactly the rotation period. So in fact, when you have a long elliptical orbit like this, the way the dynamics of of the tides work on trying to torque the rotation around, when you're far away, those torques are less, so it kind of breaks free. And when you're close, the torques are strongest and try to force you back into position. And so when you get into an elliptical orbit situation like this, instead of going into a one-to-one lock like we have on the moon, which is very, very close, why it overcomes that even though the moon is elliptical. When you're somewhat far away, you actually get driven into a three to two orbital resonance where the rotation rate you have is the rotation rate that's equivalent to the circular orbit of your innermost part. And it just happens to work out that for this case, that works out to about a three to two orbital resonance, spin orbit resonance. So it's an an example, uh, again now applied to a planet rather than to a moon, of a place where tides have played a role in pushing that planet's motion properties into a whole number ratio with another motion. So the two motions know something about each other. We use the word that those motions are commensurate. Now keep an eye out for this. We're going to keep our eyes open for various kinds of resonances throughout the solar system. Because things aren't born in resonances things move into resonances, which means if you ever see a lot of things that are in these resonances, in either commensurate orbit periods or commensurate spin orbit periods, that immediately tells you you've got an orbitally or motion dynamical system. It's dynamically evolving. So it's an important clue here. That's why I'm spending a little time with this. And again, if you want to just draw a cartoon, they've exaggerated the the shape of, of Mercury here we get a red spot here on the, on the near side, a blue spot on the far side. So on the red spot here, it's at noon. The blue spot is at midnight. And then we let Mercury go through its rotation. We ask, when is noon gonna occur again? It's not gonna be back over until this position over here. So notice it hasn't gone through a complete orbit. It's gone through 2 thirds of an orbit. And then say, okay, well, how long is it gonna to take to come back to noon again? And I've done that kind of ask backwards, but you know, what the hell. You have to get around to a three to two resonance. I hate this picture. It makes my hair, eyes twist out. So I'll just show it to you. Is there saying, yes, we can in fact work this out. It's really slow. And it's really hard to measure. Right. A 55-day rotation is really slow. That's why we needed to use radio radar techniques to find it, because it'd just be almost too hard to see visually. Now, Mercury, we knew very little about its surface for a very long time. It's, it's very, very tiny little planet, and it's very far away, and it's very close to the glare of the sun. It's really hard to point a telescope close enough to the sun that you don't have problems with the telescope. One of the problems you get is even if, remember, Mercury only gets, oh gosh, what's the number? It's uh, 20 odd degrees, 28 degrees? I forget now. 28 degrees away from the sun as seen from the earth. And so as a consequence, the front of your telescope has got sunlight shining on it because you can only observe Mercury either right just before dawn or right just after sunset. And so you're, you're leaned way over, you're looking through a lot of the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's atmosphere is turbulent, the telescope's still hot, or sunlight's starting to shine on, it's heating up. It's really hard to get good seeing. It's really hard to keep the atmospheric turbulence and stuff down so you don't get a clear view of the planet. However, the best thing to do is you send a spacecraft by and it wasn't done until Mariner 10 in 1974 and 1975. Mariner 10 was actually designed as a Venus probe but it decided also, they also put it on an orbit which would cause it to pass by Mercury twice. However, they kind of got into, a, into kind of a bad sync with the rotation, given the way the orbit of the Mariner 10 worked, and the way the very slow resonant rotation of Mercury went, both times that they passed by the planet, the same side was in brightness, in sunlight, and the other half that was dark was also dark on the second pass. So we only have images of one half of the planet from spacecraft. This is obviously kind of a problem. We only know what half of Mercury looks like. These images are really good, and we'll talk about these here in just a minute, but it means there's a lot of tantalizing details missing. As a consequence of that, a much more ambitious mission has been now aimed directly at uh, the planet Mercury. It was launched in 2004 in August. It's now beginning a series of of orbital maneuvers which are going to bring it into contact with Mercury. It's actually hard to get down into the inner part of the solar system. You've gotta play a lot of games. It takes a lot of energy to get down there. So you play a lot of games with Earth flybys and Venus flybys to bleed off some of your your orbital motion to drop you into Mercury's orbit. And what they've done is they're gonna have two flybys. They're gonna go through in 2008 and then another one a year later in 2009 which now are contrived so we can actually image the whole planet. And in fact, the image, just to, to hedge your bets, you image your, the whole the other side of the planet that didn't get imaged on 2008 pass. But each of those passes, plus its own onboard engines, have very limited fuel. I mean, you can't carry a lot of fuel with you. So you use a gravity assist plus the fuel is gonna bleed off enough energy on those two passes that by the time it comes around again for another pass, two years later in 2011, it's gonna just go for it blow the rest of the fuel in its, in its uh, tanks and use it to settle into orbit around the planet. And then it will be proceeding to orbit for a number of years until basically the electronics get fried, and we'll be able to give you a complete view of the planet, be able to have a little bit of maneuvering. They're not gonna blow all the fuel, they're gonna have some maneuvering room. But it's gonna allow us to map the planet in great detail. Now you remember, you're only gonna be, a closest approach, a perihelion, you're three-tenths of an astronomical unit from the sun. Okay, now if you think about it a little bit, remember the brightness of sunlight goes like the square of the distance away. So if we just sort of take as a round number, Mercury is three times closer to the sun than the earth, that means the sunlight on average is nine times stronger. So if you have a a kilowatt per square meter on the earth, you have nine kilowatts per square meter on the sun shield. So the Mercury, the spacecraft here is hidden in shadow. These pictures never seem to show the, the spacecraft very well because the bright side that gets sunlit is always behind a gigantic sunshield and it has to orbit in such a way that it always keeps that sunshield and its solar panels pointing at the sun so it can get power. So it's really challenging to build a spacecraft to work at Mercury because the equilibrium temperature is hundreds of degrees Kelvin and it's really hard on electronics to do that. So what they do is they shield it here and then they use passive radiative cooling because any object that's hot is a black body and radiates into space and you actually passively cool yourself in order to be able to keep the electronics cool enough to operate. You can't carry refrigerant with you on a spacecraft. It just takes too much mass. So that's what we're looking forward to is learning a lot more about Mercury. But what do we know about now? Well, one of the things that was revealed by the the passes by the Mariner 10 spacecraft is that Mercury is a really beat up world. It's extremely heavily cratered. And at very first glance, Mercury most resembles the moon. So this tells us a number of things. The first thing that tells us is that the surface is going to be very old because the crater density that we see on Mercury is about like the crater density that we see in the lunar highlands. And remember that craters only get wiped out by weathering and strong tectonic activity that can completely repave the surface. So if I see a crater density on Mercury that's the same as the crater density in the lunar highlands, I know I'm looking at terrains that are of similar age because they were both beat up during this epoch of extremely heavy bombardment. The epoch of heavy bombardment occurs during the first billion years of the solar system basically between about 4.5 billion years ago up to about 3.5 billion years ago and that's the period when all the leftover rock and debris and junk from the formation of the solar system was slowly but surely getting cleared out and one of the ways it got cleared out is it got hoovered up by the planets. When those material hit the planets they dig deep craters if you get so many impacts the craters begin to overlap and you see exactly that kind of surface in Mercury. However there's a difference if I showed you two pictures side by side of a cratered landscape and I didn't tell you which one was Mercury and which one was the moon and you had and I choose my pictures so that you can't see any particular terrain features to clue you in you would know immediately which one was Mercury and the reason is because the craters are a lot flatter than lunar craters Mercury is bigger than the moon. Its gravity is stronger. And so that means when the craters do their splash, the higher gravity keeps them from building up big, steep walls and really deep bowls. The bowls fill in with lava much more quickly, and the high mountains never grow so high because you can't build things up big in gravity. Mercury's gravity is, in fact, two times stronger than that of the moon. So immediately you're going to see the craters look like lunar craters, but they're kind of smushed a little bit. And that's your clue that you're looking at a picture of Mercury. Mercury is not without terrain features, at least on the half that we've seen so far. We certainly see highlands, just like on the moon. We see lava basins, places where large impacts have obliterated most of the old craters and crust, and relatively recent lavas filled in. Those are going to be the youngest terrains. So far, we don't see anything that looks like Maria. We don't see any large-scale, very young low-crater-density planes like the lunar Maria on, on, on Mercury. They're not exactly expected, but again, we don't know what's on the other half of the planet, so one cannot say for sure until we get the messenger mapping in the next four or five years. There is, however, one particular terrain feature that we caught on the two passes that's called the Caloris Basin, Caloris from the word calor, meaning hot, It's a gigantic ringed impact basin that appears on on one side. In fact, it was right on the day-night terminator. So we've actually seen half of the impact basin. We got lucky. If it had been the wrong time, the impact Caloris basin would have been in complete darkness and would have been missed by the Mariner probe. We also see a couple of different terrain features. We see what are called lobate scarps. I'll show a picture of that here in just a minute here. And we'll see jumbled terrain features, terrain that's very chaotic and very, very broken up. This is a little bit of an odd feature, and it seems to be related to very, very large impacts. So here's a computer reconstruction of the surface of Mercury. I don't know why they gave it this kind of golden color. It's just they did. I almost feel like I should go in with Photoshop and just turn it into black and white so it doesn't look so silly. You can see it looks a lot like the lunar highlands. It looks kind of like the lunar far side. There are a few lava plains. You can see a smooth region here where you have uh, relatively few craters, but everywhere else you see large overlapping rayed craters and just a few planes here and there. And this whole section here just happened to fall into the shadow and so we have no information. On one pass we got to look at this part, on the second pass we got to look at this part. This is a close-up of one of the photographs returned from um, the Mariner 10 mission. And again, it makes this point, this is showing a section of one of the the lava plains that you see. You can again see a very heavily cratered surface. A lot of the craters overlap, but you'll notice that the older craters are a lot flatter. They don't have that deep scoop appearance that you get from lunar craters, and you don't see them as high. It's almost like someone went up to the moon, which is really deep and pockmarked, and just took some sandpaper and kind of smoothed it off a bit. And here you're seeing the effect of Mercury's greater gravity. But the really big surprise was this thing called the Caloris Basin. Here's the Caloris Basin in one of the Mariner 10 pictures right on the day night terminator. Talk about getting lucky in your timing. This is a huge impact basin. It was probably of an actually an asteroid sized body. So a meteor, chunk of rock that hit this thing was many kilometers across. So big that it basically just punched a hole right through the crust and just just damaged the hell out of the surroundings. The ringed basin here is 1,340 kilometers across. This thing is absolutely huge. And in fact, you can see what what the fill-in was like. There were smaller craters that came in later. You can see the very heavily cratered highlands here. All of the overlapping craters jumbled together. And then you can see the rings on this basin. This is very characteristic, this ringing shape is very characteristic of an impact basin. You hit the surface so hard, and then the stuff just sits there and sloshes back and forth and rings in. That's why you get these concentric rings in these ringed impact basins. Now, to get some idea of just how really hard Mercury was whacked is, you know, you get an idea here just from the fact it obliterated everything for about 1,300 kilometers around, absolutely smoothed it in, and actually sent ripples through the planet. Those ripples in the planet radiated outward from the point of impact but you know planets are spheres so those waves then converge again on the opposite sides or at the antipodes so if you look at the opposite side of mercury on the dead opposite side of the caloris basin the terrain is completely jumbled and busted up where those seismic waves converged and just disrupted the crust and so you get this jumbled ripped up looking terrain on the exact opposite side, where the seismic waves just came back, spread out, and then refocused their energy on the antipodal point. So uh, a quick cartoon of what this was like, this would be the impact that would have formed the Caloris Basin, just obliterated the surroundings. Surface waves go slamming out around the planet and then converge on the other side, plus you're getting the punch pressure waves going through, so you get kind of a double whammy. You get pressure waves pushing you up from below, and then you get these sideways moving surface waves are, that are basically squeezing you like this. And you completely jumble and bust up the terrain. Whatever's going on, on the surface, you just basically pick it up and you toss it around. It's nowhere you want to be during one of these impacts. You might think the safest place to be on an impact is on the opposite side of the planet. You probably want to be over here somewhere. There, you know, it's, the waves will kind of roll over you and be unpleasant. But it's better than being at the focal point for the waves and this is what the terrain looks like on the antipodes of the the, uh, Caloris Basin. There have been some more recent impacts on the surface which have erased some of the features but you can see how extremely broken up this terrain looks like. It's just been jumbled and picked up and turned upside down and the craters have largely been erased over there and only recently have new craters come into play. A very big impact here formed this lava basin and then much tinier craters peppering in. So this kind of kind of jumbled up terrain, has never been seen anywhere else in the solar system, certainly among the terrestrial bodies. We don't see anything like this, for example, on the moon. There is the giant oriental basin on the backside of the moon, which is a large impact basin, but unfortunately the antipodal point is underneath one of the maria, and so it has, if there was jumbled terrain there, which you'd kind of expect, it was long since erased when the maria came in there, obliterated that terrain, and filled it in. So we're just lucky enough on Mercury to actually see the effect of this because there were no subsequent impacts or formation of maria to obliterate it. So this is all remnants of sort of the late impact, of the late period of heavy bombardment on Mercury. But part of what this shows is Mercury has had a largely dead surface, not completely dead, but mostly dead ever since the end of the late, ep- late, late bombardment epoch. Mercury is like the moon. It's a dead tecton, for the most part, tectonically dead surface. Now Mercury basically has virtually no atmosphere at all. It's a very tiny place, its gravity is fairly small, it's only 5.5% the mass of the Earth, so it's not gonna have a strong surface gravity, and it's really close to the sun, so it's gonna be really, really hot. And that combination is bad, because low gravity means that your escape speed is small, and then close to the sun and hot means that any gas molecules you do hang onto are moving really fast, And so even heavy stuff like carbon dioxide and water vapor is going to be having a thermal speed greater than your escape speed, and it just simply evaporates off the surface of the planet. But Mercury does have a little tiny wisp of an atmosphere because it has at least some gravity. It isn't able to hold on to a heavy atmosphere, but it is able to hold on to one that's basically 10 to the minus 12 of the atmosphere of the Earth. That's one trillionth of an Earth pressure. Mostly what you get is occasional hydrogen and helium that's been captured by Mercury's gravity from the solar wind. It doesn't hang on to it for very long, but there's always a solar wind to replenish the stuff that's lost. And so it, it kind of gets into a kind of equilibrium. There's a source of hydrogen-helium in the nearby solar wind. You also see atoms of sodium and calcium in the atmosphere. Those are atoms that are actually knocked off of surface rocks by energetic solar wind particles and they become a kind of a thin gas. And we can actually see the spectral signature of sodium and calcium in the spectrum of mercury. It's really, really faint, but you can see it. And the reason why it's so visible is, again, the proximity to the sun, lots of ultraviolet radiation excites the atoms and allows us to see emission lines from it. So you don't have a heavy atmosphere, but you can hold on to a little bit because you have a constant source to make up for the atoms lost. Solar wind for the case of hydrogen, helium, and then for these atoms of sodium and calcium and other things that are, if you will, spalled off the surface by the impact of very energetic particles. So you get an additional source to make up for the losses. If those sources were shut off, any gas on mercury would eventually just simply go away. Now, mercury probably had, however, a very large primordial atmosphere. Okay, it's very likely that Mercury's atmosphere resembled the, atmosphere, the primordial atmosphere of Mercury and Venus. It's big enough and should have had enough volatiles locked up in the rock, meaning carbon dioxide and water vapor, to have built up a large primordial atmosphere. But it had two things going against it. As I said before, its gravity was too small to hang on to it, and even if it did have volcanoes and outgassing during its early molten phases, the atmosphere would have stayed too hot because of the close proximity to the sun, and it simply would have made the escape, the relative thermal speeds of the, of the atoms much bigger than the escape speed, and it simply would lose it in a very quick time. So you still have all the properties that you expect to make an atmosphere. It cannot retain that atmosphere once it makes it from, from outgassing, you know, volcanic and molten types of outgassing. So we'll keep this in mind. We're going to see this when we compare terrestrial atmospheres. We're going to come back to this idea of what Mercury's primordial atmosphere should have been like and how quickly it should have evolved. So if you wanted to draw an artist's conception of what standing on the surface of Mercury would look like, it would probably look something like this. The sky would be completely black because there's no atmosphere to scatter sunlight to give you a blue sky. The sun would be big and extremely harsh bright in the sky, and you would stand on essentially a um, airless jumbled moonless plane, moon, moonlike plane where we have the, the cratered, battered, beaten up surface of Mercury. The surface temperature because of the tre- of the uh, proximity to the Sun is sort of legendary for being really hot. On the daytime side, because Mercury only very slowly rotates, it basically keeps a lot of the surface towards the sun. It's being continually baked for an 88day day. It's kind of hard to use those words, right? Mercury' is basically from dawn to, from sunrise to sunset lasts 88 days. Noon, sort of 44 days from sunrise to noon. And so it's just getting baked by the sun, and the equilibrium temperature that it achieves is around 500 degrees Kelvin, about 200 Kelvin hotter than sort of average room temperature. On the nighttime side, Because you're pointed away from the sun for 88 days, what that side of of Mercury sees is the cold depths of space. And so it's a black body. It radiates like a black body, but there's no new solar energy coming in on the night side to make up for the surface losses. And so as a consequence, the nighttime temperature on Mercury plunges by 400 degrees Kelvin down to 100 degrees Kelvin. That's 279 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. So you get this extreme day-night variation because you're getting baked on the, on the sunlit side and you're freezing on, on, the, on the far side. Some of the locations in the daytime areas where the terrain is jumbled up a bit can actually scatter sunlight locally. You notice how some patches of ground are often warmer than the air around it? Can actually get as hot as 600 degrees Kelvin. So Mercury's got a place of its extreme temperature contrast. Now the poles are an interesting place because the poles, because Mercury's orbit and its orbital axis, sorry, let me say this again, Mercury's rotation axis and its orbital plane are almost exactly at right angles. So that means if you were standing on the north or south pole of Mercury, the Sun would be just over the horizon all the time, maybe a little bit above, maybe a little bit below because we've got a little bit of tilt, but that's about it. So as a consequence, you're in perpetual shade. and as as, a, as what you expect is temperatures there should quickly achieve an equilibrium of about 125 degrees Kelvin or about 234 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. This has led to some speculation which has been very difficult to test. that The soil here is cold enough that if a comet were to impact on Mercury at the poles, the ices could actually survive at the poles. Now, there was a report a number of years ago using radar measurements that there were in fact ices, ice, ice radar return signature Inside craters at the Mercury poles, subsequent observations with new technology radar has said, no, there is no such signature. But it's still an open question. It's a very, very difficult measurement to make because you're making these sort of glancing radar measurements when Mercury is just at the right position because of its 7 degree tilt with respect to the ecliptic orbit, its orbit's tilted 7 degrees with respect to the ecliptic to make the bounce. So one of the things that's going to be studied by MESSENGER when it's in orbit and a a European-Japanese mission called Colombo, which is currently in the planning stages, but which is hoped to be launched sometime in the 2012-2013 range, is gonna be investigating whether something interesting could be going on up at these poles. These are an example of what are called thermal poles because the continuous shade makes them extremely cold. Well, that gives us the the overview of 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 the surface of Mercury. It's now time to turn to what we know about the interior. We don't know as much as we would like to know about the interior of Mercury because we haven't been able to land seismographic stations on there and be able to do the kinds of experiments like we've done on the Earth and the Moon to probe the interior with seismic waves. So we have to rely on somewhat more indirect means to, to say something about the interior. See what, the, what we can learn, even then we can learn a little bit. The first thing is that to make the point the Mercury is kind of between Mars and the Moon in size. And so we have some expectations on how objects should behave of given sizes. What we expect is that the higher gravity should mean that the lithosphere, the outer layer of crustal rock, should be thinner because of the higher gravity on on Mercury than on the Moon. But we expect it to be a little bit thicker than it is gonna be on the Earth and Mars. So a little bit of a balance off of where things are gonna work there. Now, the other clue to what's going on in the interior is to look for geologic structures on its surface that give us clues to what's going on underneath the surface. And one of these is these things I've mentioned before, and it's time to talk about. They're called lobate scarps. A scarp is basically a vertical thrust fault. It's a place where you get cliffs. Scarping is known as cliffing. So if you've got what's called a thrust fault or vertical thrust fault, you take two different parts of, of crust, and you cause one to be thrust up above the other. Some stress relieves itself and the crust buckles vertically. You form this kind of offset terrain where you get the sudden sudden change where everything's kind of a flat plane and then suddenly you fall off a cliff onto another flat plane. That's called a scarp. We see these signs and they're signs of tectonic disturbance but it's not plate tectonics because what we see on the surface of Mercury is what looks like one continuous plate. Well, what's really happening is the outer crust or the lithosphere is actually wrinkling because as mercury cools, as it cools, it shrinks and contracts. So if you've got a solid crust on mercury and you let the thing begin to shrink as the interior solidifies and cools, then you're suddenly going to get the crust is bigger than its interior. And it's going to want to sort of shrink down and wrinkle. There's going to be a lot of stresses, and then those stresses are going to go pling and break and you're gonna get a lobate scarp. So you get basically what, what best to describe is vertical tectonism. You get a vertical thrust fault that forms basically as the interior cools and contracts and the surface just sort of wrinkles. Think about what an orange looks like as an orange slowly rots and begins to wrinkle as the inside begins to shrink up. The same thing would happen. The surface of an orange, the skin of an orange is fairly soft so it just kind of bends. But if the surface of the orange was really hard and crisp, it would actually break and fracture as the inside shrunk out from underneath, the ins- from underneath the surface. So here's an example of one of these scarps, lobate scarps, and it makes a very dramatic appearance here. First of all, you see how it's got sort of these rounded features. That's where the term lobate, meaning having lobes, comes from. And you can see the cliff effect of there because you can see the shadow of the cliff, smooth plane here followed by another smooth plane and a sudden break and you can get an idea that this is a later appearance on the surface because you can see in this beautiful picture where this particular lobate scarp called the Santa Maria Rupees cuts across the crater. So the crater was formed, filled in, and then in later years, many billions of years later, the crust wrinkled and caused this vertical faulting along here. And this is not the only such of these lobate scarps found. There's a number of them found around the planet. You use the frequency of those, and of course, more, more data will come in as we begin to image the other side of the planet. Give us, geologists can use this to get an idea of what the terrain ages should look like. They can look, for example, at the crater density in a region and see how many craters are disrupted by the scarp whereas a crater hitting an already established SCARP is gonna look somewhat different. So by comparing crater rates, you can get an idea of sort of relative ages of terrains. It's kind of tricky, and it's not as exact as radioactive age dating and tricks we use here on Earth, but you can do it to a reasonable way to sort of piece together what the cooling history of Mercury is gonna be like. And it's one of the goals for future missions. Now the deep interior, of course, some of this is fairly speculative, but we do have some clues. One of them is the estimate based on the amount of lobate scarping that you see is the rocky mantle should be fairly thick, around 700 kilometers thick. But what's really surprising is Mercury has an unusually large iron core. And the evidence for this is the unusually large density of the planet. If you looked at it, slice Mercury open, you would find 75% of the radius of Mercury is an iron core and it contains something like 60% of the planet's mass. Compare that to the Earth where the iron, nickel, both the solid and liquid cores only contain about 12, 15% the mass of the Earth. So this thing is huge. And the way it's revealed is there's two pieces of, of two lines of evidence that that um, planetary geologists use to establish the presence of this iron core. One is that Mercury has a very, very weak magnetic field. It's about 1% the weak field of Earth, but it's a lot stronger than anything found on the Moon. And mercury has a lot more mass for its volume. Its density is really high, about 5.4 grams per cc. Compare this with Mars, which is a little bit bigger, but only has 3.9 grams per cc. That means there's got to be a lot more heavyweight material on the inside. You can't do this with silicates. You've got to basically have a larger fraction of iron. And so when you add up, how much mix of silicates and iron do you have to have to get up to 5.43 grams per cc? That's where you start getting the 75% of the mass, is in this gigantic iron core. So if I sliced into mercury and laid it alongside the Earth to scale, what you get is that mercury is a really thin mantle and crust alongside a huge iron core, whereas the Earth has a fairly large solid and molten outer core, but it doesn't contain nearly as much mass. 60% of the mass of the Earth or more is in the mantle, whereas most of the mass of Mercury is in its iron core. So where did this big iron core come from? How do we get such a big iron core in something? When you ask what the relative proportions of silicates and iron should be in typical rocky material in the solar system, you don't get that much iron-rich material in one place. You should have mostly silicates, like you see on the Earth and Mars and the Moon. And the answer, The seems to work best is that Mercury was formed in an immense head-on collision. The collider was probably smaller than Mercury. And because they collided head-on, the collision basically blew the mantle off both objects. But the heavier iron cores from both coalesced and merged in together. And then what material was not completely blown into escape orbits fell back on that iron core and rebuilt the sort of thin mantle. So when the the, the impact basically destroyed both planets, but the leftover material in itself, gravity, reassembled and formed this planet with a gigantic iron core and a very, very thin mantle. Now the weak magnetic field part is still kind of a mystery. It could be that there may still be some residual molten motions deep inside the interior, or it ended up with a permanent magnetism. We don't know. We've only made two passes by the planet. It's one of the missions for Mercury. So, the messenger mission. So this is a part of a computer simulation of this literal pancake splat going on, making Mercury. Well, the bottom line is planetary impacts do more than just simply mark the surface. They may play an extremely important role in the formation of that planet itself. This is the most dramatic way we've seen so far. We're gonna see other examples throughout the solar system of the role of impacts, and sometimes their surprising role. Okay, that's all for today. Your tests will be out here.